0: Thank you, Runa, and hello, everyone. So, the prodigal son. This parable is so well known, and lots of us are probably very familiar with it. I really love it. There's just so much packed into this seemingly simple family saga, and Jesus sort of squishes and squashes lessons he taught throughout his whole ministry into this one story. It's like an amazingly intricate pop-up book that unfolds and keeps unfolding. There's so much more going on between the pages than we can realise from the cover. When we see both sons turn away from their father, we're shown just how important it is to love the Lord our God above all others. And when the older son spits out his resentment and bitterness, we're shown just how destructive it is when we don't love others as we love ourselves and when we see the open arms of the loving father we're shown a preview glimpse of the self-sacrificial selfless gracious love that took Jesus to the cross there's enough packed into this incomparable parable to preach it on it every Sunday of the year but We haven't got all year. So this morning, we're going to focus on the central strands of sin, love and forgiveness that are woven through the story. But before we start properly, let's pray together for God to open up his word for us. Lord, you know, this has been a challenging one for me. May you be with each of us this morning. Nudge us if we need nudging. Comfort us if we need comforting. May you speak to each of us through your word. And may we carry your words with us into the coming week. Amen. So, sin, love and forgiveness. No pressure. In order to understand the extraordinary love and forgiveness of God, it's probably a good idea to make sure we understand the seriousness of sin and the majesty of God. So, let's start with sin. Our eight-year-old daughter, Jemima, went back to school this week. On Tuesday afternoon, they had an RE lesson and were learning about Easter. As part of the lesson, the teacher did a little hands-up-if-you-know type quiz. And one of the questions was, hands up if you know what sin is. There was a bit of muttering. A few of the children said, no, what's sin? I've never heard of that. And in the end, Mima was the only one who put her hand up. She was pretty chuffed that she knew the answer. Great work, Ali and the Cosmic team. But I've got to admit, I was a little bit shocked that a class full of eight-year-olds didn't know the word sin or what it meant. But then I had to think about it and I realised that actually it does make sense that a lot of these children wouldn't know about sin because in our Western culture, at least, the concept of sin has kind of fallen out of relevance for a lot of people. Just like beauty, for a lot of people, sin is in the eye of their beholder. We've moved away from absolute truths towards A sort of, well, it feels good to me, so that must mean it's okay, sort of post-truth culture. The whole idea of sin, of there being some sort of universal standard of behaviour, has become offensive, or even irrelevant, and sort of fizzled away into obscurity. If we think about just a couple of the Ten Commandments, like do not covet, or honour your father and your mother, I actually can't imagine the reaction if I mentioned to someone who isn't familiar with church speak that being jealous of their colleague or insulting their parents isn't just a bad idea or a bit unwise. It's actively sinful. And here in our passage in Luke, as we heard last week, Jesus is on his way to the cross. He set his face towards what's to come and is very aware of where he's heading and how short the journey is he doesn't have much time left to reach and teach the people who need to hear the truth about God and here Jesus is eating with some friends when the Pharisees and teachers of the law start mumbling and grumbling about the fact he's eating with sinners the implication is that as a rabbi Jesus should be teaching and also living out a correct understanding of sin and she be separating himself from people who don't keep up with the laws and rituals. But instead, here he is sitting down to supper with people who are known to be sinful. And when he's challenged in this way, typically of Jesus, rather than correcting their assumptions directly, he tells three stories. The first two, the good shepherd who searches for his lost sheep and the good woman who searches for her lost coin serve as sort of introductions to the concept of love and sin that are central to the third parable, parable, the one usually known as the prodigal son. Now, the word prodigal is actually quite interesting because these days we mostly use it as a sort of shorthand for people who've gone wandering off and reappeared. Ah, the prodigal returns. But actually, it's got nothing to do with wandering. Prodigal actually means lavish, profligate, recklessly spendthrift. So a bit like me as a child on Saturday mornings when I'd take my clinking pocket money into the newsagents and spend a whole lot on jelly tops and lurid green limeade with not a single thought in my head about saving up for something sensible. And it's funny that this parable has become known as the prodigal son because The central point of the story isn't related to the younger son's spending habits at all. In fact, as we'll come to see, the parable would probably better be called the good father and his two lost sons. Why two sons? Surely the main story centres around the first son, the proverbial prodigal. Well, his story may be longer, but that doesn't mean it's the only important one. Jesus himself lays out early that the central meaning of the parable is held within both strands of the story. As he begins by saying in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. He begins with the youngest son, but the older son isn't just an add-on or an appendix that the story would still work just as well without. We need to understand both sons' lifestyles and perspectives to really get to grips with what Jesus is showing us about sin Love and forgiveness. So, in this parable, probably for the benefit of the listening Pharisees, Jesus weaves his understanding of sin into the narrative. And as we've said, Jesus begins with the younger son's story. As he talks about the boy asking for his inheritance early and his subsequent descent into abject misery and poverty, Jesus includes details which would have assured his listeners, particularly the Pharisees, that Yes, this man, Jesus, does teach and understand sin correctly. In fact, Jesus' story shows that his understanding of sin is very, very serious. This boy is so impatient for his father's riches that in verse 12, he demands his inheritance early. Just under the surface of these words are two really important implications. One. That he doesn't love or value his father or their relationship at all. He only values his father's riches and what he can get for himself. And two, that his father may as well be dead to him. And this is the very heart of the sin the boy commits. We often jump ahead and think of the way he squanders his father's money and lives recklessly, spends all his inheritance on jelly tops and limeade. But these are selfish and and these are selfish and sinful behaviours. But in fact, the big central sin of his story is committed before he even leaves home. The younger son is saying, essentially, that he wants his father's things, but not his father. Imagine, I mean, just imagine your child, someone you really, really love, coming up to you and saying, actually, I'm done pretending to love you. All I really want is your money. So. Can you either just die now or give me what's in your will for me? When he says this, the boy breaks both his relationship with his father and his father's heart. And this then is the central issue not the money or the spending or even the leaving. The central issue is the broken relationship and the father's broken heart. And then, as we see in verses 13 to 16, The boy's rejection of his father does take him far from home and leads him to be desperately lost. This is serious sin. And Jesus listeners will hear this and know that he not only understands what sin is, a rejection of God himself revealed in our thinking and our behaviours. He also understands that the seriousness of it is down to its offensiveness to a holy God and the breaking of his heart. And I've got to admit, this is a new way of thinking about sin for me. Maybe I just haven't given it much thought before. But honestly, for me, sin has always meant exactly how Jemima summed it up for her class. Doing bad and naughty things like lying or stealing. And these are the outward signs of sin. But the core of the sin itself is the rejection of God and his love. So it's a bit like chickenpox. Bear with me. This will hopefully make sense. With chickenpox, we see and feel the itchy spots. But the spots themselves aren't the actual illness. The virus itself is sub-microscopic and we can't see it. But the temperature we can measure and the itchy spots we can see and the sore throat we can feel are all symptoms that reveal that the virus is there. And with sin... Our thoughts, actions, behaviours and habits, the stuff that can be seen on the outside and felt on the inside, are all symptoms that reveal our turning away from God and our prioritising of ourselves. This is tough stuff to chew on. But getting back to our parable, let's pause the younger son's action because before we go any further into his story, Let's take a quick look at what the second son is getting up to. As we've said, partly because of the shorthand title of the prodigal son and probably partly because it's slightly easier to interpret and digest, we tend to focus more on the younger son. We can recognise straight away the sins of the boy, his bare face, cheek and insult to his father, his wasteful spending, his degeneration, into the ultimate humiliation for a Jewish person, working for a Gentile in a foreign nation, feeding pigs, which were seen as unclean in Jewish culture. But when we come to the second son and his reactions in verses 28 to 30, if we're honest, we can sort of see his point. How is it fair that the young son has selfishly gone off and squandered his inheritance having this big adventure and is suddenly welcomed back? not only into the house, but actually back into the family. To help us understand why the older son's behaviour is also equally sinful, we need to know a bit more about the culture of the day. So this was an intensely patriarchal society, and children were expected to be respectful and obedient towards their parents, and especially their fathers. Publicly humiliating your father was so serious. It could see you permanently kicked out of your family and also your village. In Jesus' parable, the father is throwing a celebratory feast, probably one of the biggest and most public feasts he's ever hosted, with the fattened calf and the dancing and the music, a proper knees up. But in verse 28, the older son refuses to go in. He sculpts around outside, sulking on the fringes, publicly casting a vote of no confidence in his father. This is out and out disrespect from the son who had previously not put a foot wrong. It's seriously bad behaviour and we often just skip over it thinking, yeah, I've probably been pretty bitter too. But if we peel away the previous rule following, reliable diligence of the older son and dig down into the source of his bitterness, we can actually find the same core as we found in the younger son. They may live their lives differently, but their hearts are the same. What did the younger son want most in life? He wanted to get hold of his father's money and go his own way and live his own life. So what did the older son want most? The same thing as his brother. He's just as resentful of the the father as the younger son is. He describes himself in verse 29 as slaving away for his father. This is not working hard because he loves and respects his dad. This is outward obedience to try and earn his father's perks and benefits. This older brother too wants his father's things, his wealth and rewards rather than just enjoying being with his dad. And so he rejects him. It's the same sin as the younger son just wearing more outwardly respectable clothes. And the consequences are identical too, as the older son ends up standing at a distance, separated and alone. He's just as lost as his brother. And if we think about it, this is the uncomfortable truth of not just the sin of both sons in this parable, but of all sin from Adam and Eve onwards. The very centre of Jesus' understanding of sin is love, our rejection of God and his love in favour of ourselves. If we peel away the onion layers of our self-justifying excuses, we find at the core of all our sinful behaviour are turning away from God and are turning inwards towards ourselves whatever our sin looks like, overt and obvious or covert and concealed. When we sin, we de-God God God, and we deify ourselves and our own desires. And this is uncomfortable and it's actually really hard to swallow, especially now in the run-up to Easter. And all that means, it's really important that we understand sin in these terms in order to fully appreciate How extraordinary, how undeserved, how radical God's love and forgiveness truly are. So now we hopefully have a better understanding of what Jesus is saying in this parable about sin and how rejecting God leads to lostness. Let's take a look at what he has to say about love, forgiveness and the road back home. So Jesus listeners, And particularly the Pharisees and teachers of the law would have had a few fairly clear ideas of how the father should respond to the disrespect and humiliation heaped on him by his sons. After the younger son has asked for the money in verse 12, the listeners would have been expecting it all to kick off. The father would be shocked, furious and send him packing with a flea in his boxed ears. But no, in Jesus' story, the father's response is even more shocking than than the request he simply divides his property between them to properly understand the significance of this we should notice that the greek word translated as property is the word bios which essentially means life the wealth of the father would have been mostly tied up in his land and buildings and to release the younger son's inheritance He would have had to go public with this humiliating situation and sell a proportion of his land holdings. The father then is literally tearing his life, his bios, apart in order to divide the property. And incredibly, the father does it. He patiently endures public humiliation and loss of honour, all the while feeling the pain of rejection because of the unfathomably deep love he has for his son. Most of Jesus' listeners would never have seen a Middle Eastern patriarch respond like this. This is the father's love revealed in his outward responses to his son. And the father doesn't stop there. Later in the younger son's story, in verse 17, when he's scraped right through the bottom of his life barrel and is totally spent, he comes to his senses. And as he's starving in the pigsty, he realises, yeah, it's time to go home. And despite his father's incredible show of love in giving him his early inheritance, at this point, the boy still doesn't properly understand how deeply he's loved by his dad. So he talks himself through his plan. I'll say, Dad, I've done so much wrong. I don't deserve to be your son. Instead, can you arrange an apprenticeship for me? With the idea being that if he started earning a wage, he could work towards one day paying his dad back and sort of buying his way back into the family. So while he's in this foreign land, still literally and figuratively distant from his father, the boy knows he's done wrong and isn't worthy of being lovingly fathered, but he's still trying to do things his own way and fix his problems himself. Essentially he's saying, I sinned, I'm unworthy, here's how I'm going to solve the problem. Ah, so close and yet still so far. But let's look carefully at the next part of his story in verses 20 and 21, because There's a small but significant change to his prepared speech when he gets home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops there. He leaves out the last part of his speech. He stops trying to fix things himself. The son finally understands the depths of his father's love for him. Revealed again in a visible, costly and totally unexpected way, this incredible boundary-breaking father who hitches up his robes and races to find his lost son. Throwing his arms around him and kissing him in utter disregard for patriarchal propriety and public humiliation, he doesn't give a monkey's what people think of him. He just wants to hold his little boy again. And in witnessing that loving self-sacrifice, the son finally understands that the problem isn't his spending, his near starvation, or even the pig feeding. The problem is that he broke his dad's. Heart. And now he's seen his father publicly demonstrate his heartbreak and costly love. The boy finally understands that he can't solve the problem. He can only repent of it and surrender to the authority of his father and accept the love and grace he's offered. And this is Jesus' definition of repentance. Accepting the costly love extended to us, all of us, including the son. And this is what he does. This wayward son repents of his self-focused sinning, surrenders to his dad's authority and accepts his costly but freely given love, grace and forgiveness. And he is forgiven. He's delighted in. He's rejoiced over. He's held close. A cherished son again, and together they go back home for a proper knees up. But what about the older son? As we've seen, his rejection of his father happens during this reconciliation celebration when he bitterly refuses to join the party, choosing instead to publicly humiliate his father by staying outside. And just as their sins are the same, the father's response in verse 28 is the same. He now publicly reveals the depths of his love for his older son by shaking off the cultural norms of the day, which would have seen him either send a servant out to give his son an earful for his insolence or simply lock all the doors to show everyone that the son is no longer welcome in the family. Instead, the father lowers himself in the eyes of all those at the party and once again goes out to find a lost son. He treats both his sons the same in their lostness. He actively comes out to find them because he loves them so much. But this older son just doesn't see it he still doesn't recognise or accept in an act of repentance the love his dad has for him. And because he doesn't see it, he falsely accuses his father of favouritism and injustice. Instead of recognising the lovingly sacrificial nature of his father coming out to find him, he is still so focused, complaining in verses 29 and 30, a fattened calf for that loser! I've never disobeyed you and you haven't even given me a goat to eat with my friends. His father's showing his self-sacrificing, countercultural love. But the older son is still fixated on following rules and earning rewards. The love is there already and it's freely available to him. He just needs to accept it. So what happens next? Does he accept it? Ah, oh, we don't know because this is where the story ends. Jesus leaves his listeners on a cliffhanger. Why does he do this? Well, the thrust of the story has been to define sin and to demonstrate the incredible life-changing preconception-shattering love and forgiveness available to those who repent of their rejection of God in all the ways that can happen and submit to his authority. And Jesus' two sets of listeners, the so-called sinners with whom he's eating and the Pharisees, He's been challenged by will have recognised themselves in the stories of the younger son or the older son. This open-ended cliffhanger is a plea from Jesus in these last days before his own loving sacrifice to the older brothers listening. Soften your hearts. Stop trying to buy your way into God's good books with your rigid rules. And recognise his extraordinary love and forgiveness, freely given if you repent and turn to him. As Jesus leaves the older son's story open-ended, he's placing the ball in the Pharisees' court. They've heard the story. They've grasped the re- the meaning. How will they respond? And how will we respond to what we've been thinking about this morning for Those of us who know God, and for those of us who don't yet, sin is a reality, not an irrelevance. Jesus' original listeners would have been thunderstruck, offended and infuriated by this parable of sin, love and forgiveness. We might be feeling a little bit ruffled ourselves, especially with all this talking about overt and covert sins. And probably, if we're totally honest, We could hold a mirror up to ourselves and see elements of both sons reflected back at us, at least a little bit, maybe just in the very corner of the frame. Sometimes we might recognise ourselves in the younger son's self-focused desire to please himself. And other times we may see the older son's outward rule keeping and hints of the swirling resentments and selfish motivations bubbling away under the surface of our own behaviours. This is an uncomfortable thing to do. I found this uncomfortable because I know there are things I see in the mirror that I need to have a jolly good think about with God. But it's really important. And as we're looking in the mirror and starting to feel a bit poked and prodded and conscience pricked, we need to remember the point that Jesus is making. God is love and his response to us is and always will be loving. Jesus is saying that both the younger sons and the older sons among us are spiritually lost until we acknowledge the deep, deep love God has for us. Repent, submit, and instead of saying, my will be done, genuinely say, thy will be done. But it's the core of our repentance that matters. Because if we're sorry because of fear of retribution, then it's not real repentance. And if we're sorry because we hope it will buy our way into God's good books, it's not real repentance. Real repentance isn't fearful or selfish. The core of Jesus' teaching on sin and repentance is love, God's and our's. Good living and rule keeping is not enough for children of our heavenly father. We aren't servants whose good behaviour is enough for a servant-master relationship. We're sons and daughters and our salvation comes when our family relationship with our father is restored through the loving sacrifice of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus was stripped Of his dignity so that we could be clothed with a dignity we don't deserve on the cross Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we could be brought back into God's family freely by grace on the cross Jesus loved us and what was it that changed the younger son's heart in the end the sight of his father running towards him with his robe hitched up and his arms flung wide. And how can our hearts be changed? We need to be moved, stirred, floored by the sight of what it cost to bring us home. Tim Keller puts it like this. Jesus Christ, who had all the power in the world, emptied himself of his glory. And became a servant. He laid aside the infinities and immensities of his being and at the cost of his life paid the debt for our sins, purchasing us the only place our hearts can rest in his father's house. Knowing this will transform us from the inside out. Why wouldn't we want to offer ourselves to someone like this? So, As we continue along the road to Easter, let's not leave Jesus on a cliffhanger. Now is the time to have a rummage through our behaviours, motivations and habits. Lay down our sins and self-focus. Turn our eyes towards the cross and get ourselves Easter ready. The journey home may start in the pigsty. But if we retrace our steps and accept the costly love that is extended to us, we will end our journey in the open, loving arms of our Father. Let's pray. Oh God, our good, good Father. Wow, thank you for your love. Your incredible, robe-hitching, arm-flinging, life-changing love. May our hearts never grow cold to you. May our wills never supersede yours. And may our eyes always stay fixed on you. Amen.